welcome to Arrested DevOps episode 18, the SysAdmin Show. I'm your co-host, Matt Stratton, on the Twitter known as at Matt Stratton. And I'm your co-host, Trevor Hess, at Trevor G. Hess on Twitter. Arrested DevOps is brought to you by 10th Magnitude, a cloud services company that figures if you're listening to this podcast, then you must be pretty cool. You can find out about joining their cool cloud services team at 10thMagnitude.com. Also, don't forget that registration is available for the first ever DevOps Days Chicago. Arrested DevOps listeners can get 10% off their registration with the code ADO10. That's ADO and the number 10, like for 10%. Visit ArrestedDevOps.com slash DevOpsDaysChicago for all the details. So if you guys remember way back in episode three, so long-time listeners or new listeners, that was ArrestedDevOps.com slash three, we focused on developers. Now, 15 episodes later, we're finally <laughs> talking to sysadmins, the ops in DevOps. So, yeah, it's uh, I'm pretty excited for this one. Um, this has been kind of a... Trevor, I know you just came back from vacation or something. You, you've been traveling. I'm actually not even in Chicago right now. I'm out in Newport Beach, which is where Arrested Development takes place. So, there's that. So, yeah. Coming to you from the OC. Don't call it that. But I'm pumped. So, that being said, this episode is sponsored by PagerDuty. PagerDuty does not endorse that bad, bad joke. But PagerDuty does eliminate the noise, chaos, and manual processes across the entire incident lifecycle to decrease resolution time. PagerDuty is trusted by companies like Etsy, Nike, and GitHub. To sign up for a free 30-day trial, visit ArrestedDevOps.com slash PagerDuty. And this podcast is also brought to you by Datadog a monitoring tool that helps bridge the gap between operations and dev teams. Datadog brings together system metrics, events, and alerts from over 80 common infrastructure tools so that dev and ops teams share their key data and alerts in a single place and collaborate on issues in real time. Datadog is available for a 14-day trial at arresteddevops.com slash datadog18. That's arresteddevops.com slash datadog18. So, like Trevor said, we, we did a, a dev show. It was one of our very first ones we did back in, I think it was like in January. So, it, 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 I'm surprised it took this long for us to do the sysadmin show, but I'm really excited because these are my people, right? The sysadmins, you know, the ones who do all the real work. I, I know it's not very DevOps, but tonight I don't care because sysadmins rule. You guys can't see it, but Mike Wright just did the, uh, the rock out horns. That's right. <laughs> Metal. Speaking <laughs> so, which, speaking of uh, which, we should probably introduce the panel. That was exactly uh, of awesome sysadmins. <laughs> guys, you guys want to go ahead and we'll go around table. Uh, Brian, you want to introduce yourself first? Sure. My name is um, Brian Wagner. I do a couple of other podcasts. I do LinuxInstall.net and I do DevOps Mastery. I've been doing the sysadmin thing for almost 20 years. Started off at FedEx doing email administration and system administration and just kept doing it. Been supporting web ops type stuff for most of my career. I'm doing a whole bunch of security stuff too. Awesome. Um, Thanks for joining us tonight, Brian. Hey, Chris, want to introduce yourself? Yeah, I'm uh, Chris Reed. I've uh, been doing the sysadmin thing for just over 20 years. Uh, done a fair bit of consulting at IBM, the great evil, as well as uh, many years at ThoughtWorks. Just spending a lot of time flip-flopping between uh, being a dev and being a sysadmin or being a network admin, and now I get to get to do all of those things. Awesome. Thanks for joining us as well. 
And Mike, you want to introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, my name is Mike Fiedler, at Mike Fiedler on Twitter. I've been in this field of computing. It seems like you've invited everybody who's got about 20 years or more experience, so I'm a member of that club. done this across a couple of continents, a bunch of different companies, both uh, larger and smaller. Uh, I currently work for Datadog as the director of tech ops, and uh, we, we build big things, and I've, I love doing what we do. So this is kind of... Uh, you know, coming full circle. I'm also a sometimes co-host on the Food Fight show and pretty vocal on a bunch of different other topics. So you'll see my name around at some point. Awesome. Thanks for joining us. Matt, you want to kick off the discussion? Of course, I would love to. So <laughs> one of the things I think that's kind of a good start is, so we keep talking about, we're like, all right, it's a sysadmin show, it's a sysadmin show. So what exactly does it mean to be a sysadmin? Like, how would you define a sysadmin? A system admin is, is the person responsible for maintaining the operating system, all of the network connectivity, making sure that disks don't run out of space, that there's enough disks. In a DevOps-type way, we're generally the ones that have to figure out how to take the code the developers are doing and making it fit on servers, figuring out what size they need to be, that kind of thing, and pretty much just responsible for the, the care and feeding of all the virtual or physical hardware, depending on what you're talking about. Yep, I'd agree with that. So it's also uh, keeping the lights on, um, keeping everything up and running. I think traditionally also it's always been we take what the developers are throwing at us and um, against generally the developers' best efforts, we uh, make sure that it stays up and stays running. Um, something that I, I like to try and at least teach my PFYs when, uh, when I've got them under me is to uh, actually have the conversations with the devs as well and help them understand the concept of mechanical sympathy for, for what their code is having to run on. Because sometimes they just don't understand the limitations of, of what's there. So I, I'm going to take a different tack on the, uh, the definition. I, I uh, did a talk at uh, Velocity New York last year, might have been last year, where I kind of tried to delve down the history of what uh, systems administration uh, entailed and where it's gone. And just breaking down the word of administrator, what is an administrator? Is someone who's typically tasked with managing shared resources for the better good of everyone. So whether that be, you know, uh, hard disks or operating system patches, but beyond that, even full data centers, so that way an entire company can continue to survive to support Chris's keeping the lights on metaphor, it's taking whatever the company needs to do to grow and sustain itself and expand on that. And if there are shared resources, then then kind of manage the pool of shared resources and figure out what needs to be allocated when. That's a more touchy-feely description, but... I like it. Yeah, okay. It's interesting, too, to think about how kind of historically, right, like going from, like, the idea of computer operator to computer administrator... You know, because I think about, or system operator, right? Like, so think about kind of when I was coming up, and I think we're all kind of, again, you know, <laughs> around the same vintage, that it was, it was sysop, right? Like, it wasn't sysadmin, it was sysop. It was, you were the operator of the computer, and it's, I kind of, kind of like to think about, and again, right? Like, Mike, you were talking about where it gets into that, that touchy-feely. It's like where that evolution goes, a list more of the, I don't know. I, I, I I'm just kind of curious what, what you think is the implication of that etymology uh, word, that word change from being the operator of the machine to the administrator of well, the machine. 
I, I think there's a difference between the two. So my brother-in-law is, uh, he is a sysop for IBM in the global mainframe support center in Johannesburg. And, you know, he is a sysop and talking to him about what he does day to day, it's very much other batch jobs running. Is everything still up? Is everything going? And that's about as far as he gets to go within the hierarchy. He doesn't get to understand or spec or do any capacity planning or, you know, have a look at upgrade cycles or any of the, the kind of general stuff, which I think separates the sysop from the sysadmin. Sysadmin is, uh, the more I think about Mike's definition, the more I like it, where it's beyond, it's that whole greater good keeping everything going. It's that wider range. I think it's gone from the days where it was kind of possibly, uh, you know, some kind of manager who was kind of allocating the budget to, to actually having someone who's looking after the systems and understands them technically starting to, to specify these are the classes of servers we need for the workloads that we have. This is how we need to scale them. This is how we need to grow them. This is how far we can go with our current capacity before we need to look at better cooling, better power, things like that. Yeah, and, and to go to go back to kind of like hist- historical definitions, right, some of the earliest computers had computer operators, sysops or just, you know, computer operators, the people who moved the wires and, and plugged things in and then pressed a button to program a calculation that other people had designed, a.k.a. developers, in order to execute that kind of program and produce the results, whether those be, you know, lights being lit up, printouts, etc. And uh, those were the operators. As it grew, as more and more operators and the the programmers kind of merged because we we developed these higher level of uh, abstractions of programming language to enable that interface to machines. Now you had a big computer room that had a bunch of fans and a bunch of tape reels that had a punch card thing. So the guy who or gal whoever was in charge of running that room had to make sure that everybody got the right amount of timeshare at their university on this computer that if the card feeder kind of broke down that they knew how to change the belt or or change the the thing and and these kind of skill sets have changed over time to map to the technologies that are in play but the actual practice of balancing the needs versus the, the the supply and demand really of what we have has always been the systems administrator role i concur so, so, but here's here's an interesting thing. So I was thinking about this a little bit, and a lot of when you're kind of when you're saying when you're talking about like what that evolution from operator to administrator, or just the maybe it's less about the evolution from operator to administrator because again, like Chris pointed out, there's computer operator is still a thing, and it's not necessarily, but it's as we evolved to require that extra thing, it's kind of like DevOps, right? You know, and uh, my friend John Smith is fond of saying, because he, when he's introduced to DevOps, he's kind of like, huh, I've been doing this a long time, back when I just called it working. <laughs> you know? So we, we could definitely get into an hour-long uh, argument over what DevOps means. I don't know if that's the best use of our time. <laughs> no, but I wanted to kind of go into it. But thinking about but I, I think it's interesting, but my point was sort of like that evolutionary thing is like, in a lot of ways to me is, is similar to that. And, and so that being said, you know, obviously we're a show about, about DevOps. And so the, the question I came up with, I'm kind, of, I'm kind of curious, I've never asked this one before, but what's your favorite thing about DevOps? It's shorter than sysadmin. <laughs> that's three syllables versus two. That's, that's my favorite thing. 
what was it? I think Pat Patrick DeVos said at Minneapolis, he said something about that they called it DevOps because it was shorter than Agile System Administration, <laughs> which was the original name. Yep. Yep. Does anybody else have a favorite part about it? My favorite part about it is just it, it's the collaboration and getting to, to learn to play with other things, right? I wouldn't normally have a chance to talk to somebody like Trevor, who's a developer, who's focused on doing development and learn about how Java's inner workings work. But because I do web ops, DevOps type stuff, I have to learn how those things work because I have to be able to support those guys. And so just like I don't think it's right for developers not to understand how things like the network stack works or anything else basic. I mean, I don't expect them to have deep knowledge, but at least basic knowledge of how the operating system works. Being able to do that collaboration and, and that cross-talk and, and learn some things as well as teach some things is, is one of my favorite things about being in, in the DevOps world. Yeah, for me, my, my favorite one is having a term that people can gather around and, and try and get. You know, in the past, I've been the developer or been the sysadmin trying to talk to the other side, and it's, oh, you can't do this because X, Y, and Z. Now it's at least a point that managers are now aware of. You can go and wave. It's like, well, they've all agreed that they want the DevOps hotness, and so now it's, you know, an excuse that you can wave in front of them to say uh, it's good for people to talk to each other. I mean, that's fair. Those are all probably better definitions than my 30% syllable cut. I guess the the favorite part is that it's become it's opened up the discussion for me that um it's no longer here's these guys who sit in a closet and tinker with things that we don't understand and we don't necessarily want to play with them now it's opened up the platform of discussion to say all right here are these all these kind of realms of informational knowledge that we just don't have proficiency in but these there's these other people who do so let's talk amongst ourselves and figure that out. And just to go on and, and build on that, it's also that tearing down those walls. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but when I started off doing the thing that is now DevOps, but when I was doing it before, it was pretty much developer create code, developer hand code to sysadmin, sysadmin deploy code. And there was really not a lot of communications that was going on in that stream, which made life freaking hell for everybody. The developers were never happy because they never had what they needed. The sysadmins never knew what anybody wanted, but they just knew everybody was pissed off at them and shit ran downhill and they were standing at the bottom of the hill to catch it. And now that we have something, to Chris's point, now that we have something that we can say, you know, this is what DevOps is and this DevOps thing that we should all be participating in is about collaboration as much as it's about automation and how we do things. So, you know, having those collaboration points to point to and say, hey, this is what we really need to do, and have it there to back us up, I think is just incredibly useful. We have a, a question came in from our, our viewers. So Patrick Cable says, interestingly enough, I wonder to what degree of intentionality AWS used the word sysop for one of their certifications. So there's an Amazon cert called Certified Sysops Admin Associate. So <laughs> I don't oh. know how much that's a question. is. It's just an, uh, <laughs> an observation. It's what do you guys think about this term? I, I guess, um, I, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I haven't heard of it. I'm going to look it up now, but I'm going to guess that it probably has something to do with how do you run systems on this vendor's platform. It seems like most certifications that are out there apply to a vendor who is providing them. So, you know, if you were to get the Red Hat certified, Red Hat is not going to teach you a lot about 
Oracle software, they're going to teach you about Red Hat stuff. So I'm going to guess that AWS certified SysOps is going to teach you about system level operations on the AWS platform. Obviously, I don't know that. That's just my guess. But that seems to be a pattern of certifica- certification that I've seen in the world. Yeah, it says the concepts that you should understand for the exam include deploying, managing, and operating highly available systems on AWS. One of my favorites is one of them is estimating AWS usage costs. So yeah, it kind of sounds to me. My experience with, with Amazon in training is the last project I actually did at ThoughtWorks before I left them was actually working with Amazon to develop the very first AWS training courses. And so I basically, me and one of the EC2 core devs, uh, initially, we, we sat down and developed a full day workshop. And Amazon were doing this very, very reluctantly because they were just getting hounded by people left, right, and center. And at least at that stage, this was middle of 2009, we were doing this. They were, they were constantly having people bugging them to do training uh, and to get certification. And they were just like, it's not our core business. We're not interested. And so you know, we got ThoughtWorks out to develop it initially. And given that history, I'd say it's probably people coming to say, we will give you large amounts of money for some certification, please. And so they just kind of outsourced it to someone else and say, there you go. Do what you th- what the PHBs are asking for and take it from there. So, yeah, so listeners, if you are a certified SysOps admin associate, please uh, let us know what you think of that program and how much of its operation and how much of it is administration, in your opinion. And uh, This is I mean, it, audience feedback. Yeah, it looks Thanks. interesting. There's an exam. There are no prerequisites. So if you've had some experience in AWS, you might actually be able to take it without taking any training and, and pass and become certified. Maybe I'll do that tomorrow. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I can take a, take a practice exam, see how far we get. Yes. I had a the a, a guy that I worked with who was like the director of network security at this insurance company I worked with. And this was probably like 10 years ago or something. Or actually, when he did it, it was probably a good 15 because it was NT4. But he just decided to get his MCSE in a day. He didn't study. And, and again, and this was not because it was super easy. It was more because he was like, but he's just like, I, I bet I could do this. Like, that's, <laughs> that's just a lot of tests. Yeah, MCSE took a while. It's been years since I thought about that. But yeah. the, the more fun one that I had with was Novell. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> and this is going back some 15, 16 years, and that, that was a lot of fun. Novell Netware, the original networking. Yeah. Dude, I remember when Net, when Novell was big enough that remember when you, when you would call in their support and they had like a radio station that was the hold music that had like, instead of traffic reports, it was like, they would list like the hold times for the different lines you might be calling in on. Cause there were that many people that were using Novell that it mattered. Good old red client. Yep. Here's the thing. So I, I sort of have this belief that sysadmins are inherently cynical. So what do you think about that? Why are you limiting it just to sysadmins? Because yeah. I've met more than a few cynical developers, and I just think it's us as IT people in general are just cynical. Like, we always... I think pessimistic is more of the word I'm looking for. Like, I feel like the shops I've worked in and the sysadmin teams I've, I've worked with or, or had working for me, we tend as a breed... So so this is my theory, and they can tell me if, it, if I think it's right or wrong. Or, well, my theory, of course, is right. But is that it goes with the job, right? Because, like, part of the job of the sysadmin is to think of all the things that could go wrong so you can guard against them. And if you're doing that all the time you start to see shadows everywhere, right? You know, I don't know. I just I just feel like it's 
like the last team that I ran, the, the thing I would say all the time is, okay, look, I know you guys can think of a hundred reasons this won't work. Let's just make believe it will. <laughs> you know? <laughs> well, I mean, uh, I'll differ a little bit on that, on that, uh, approach. Um, I, I, I try to be, uh, very optimistic and realistic and, and try not to let cynicism creep mm-hmm. too much into my day to day. I feel like that, that is definitely a stigma that exists around not, as, as Brian said, not just, uh, systems administrators, but also tech people in general. And I think that might be because we see how badly things are broken on a day-to-day basis. Like anybody who sat down at a system that they inherited is like, oh, this is terrible. Anybody who's inherited some code and looks at it, oh, this is terrible. If you looked at your own code two years later, oh, this is terrible, right? Uh, so we, we deal with that kind of struggle of, Everything is just crap and we have to deal with that, whether it be, you know, fixing it or replacing it or just, you know, walking away and having a stiff drink, you know, just dealing with these kind of real life. And this is our job. Like, this is what we do day in, day out. So I I definitely see how cynical attitudes can can help brave the storm of, of basically, I think Brian mentioned shit running downhill. You know, but that doesn't apply only to systems people. It just is probably more common with the communities that you hang with are systems people. So you see the cynicism there as opposed to the people who are inheriting broken code as opposed to inventing code every day. There's a slight theory I have carrying on with that is um, part of being the ones at the bottom of the hill to clean it up. We've got no one else to pass it on to, so you kind of have to vent back up to the rest of the world that it's all broken, try and kind of aim the fan to spray some of it back up. So I wonder, I, I guess my other part of that too is it's a matter of, and it's funny, it, it, it brings to mind that this part in High Fidelity when he says, what came first, the music or the misery? And so it's like, what came first, right? The system administration or the pessimism? And by that I mean like, is it a thing that you develop because of like, you know, like you said, it's because you're cleaning up the messes a lot because you're seeing it because you're, you're in it. But then at the same token, is it something where you kind of have to like that, I think, or else you're going to go do something else with your life, right? And, and, and Mike, I'm like you, like I tend to be a much more optimistic person when it comes to things, which is, you know, when it comes to those things, so I don't know why I still do this. Actually, it's probably why I got, why I don't do ops anymore directly, but like, do you kind of have to, does that have to be a thing that's, that's fun for you, do you think? You know, it, it, we're in this field for a, a variety of reasons. Like, everybody uh, has come to systems administration through some path. Like, nobody goes, studies computer science, and is immediately a systems administrator. In fact, very few people actually follow that path. Uh, we, we all are drawn to this through some sort of personality trait or kind of curiosity to see behind the ether, Maybe some people are on control power trips. But like you said, Matt, if you don't like it, then you go and do something else. Like, Chris, you've been doing system stuff. You've been doing development stuff. Now I kind of straddle the the line. I do a lot of coding, but it's usually infrastructure-focused coding. So you kind of have to find where you want to go, and then that's the part that you enjoy about it. If you don't like it, you know, uh, what was it? There's a, a popular Ignite and series of talks by Nathan Harvey about quitting your job. You know, if, if you don't want to do that because you don't like doing that, somebody else will hire you to probably do stuff that you want to do. If you do it, you'll yeah. do it better. I mean, for me, it's the having to put up with the, the stuff breaking and the pain and suffering is, to me, it's just a side effect. I do it because there is the joy 
in seeing a perfectly running system under heavy load doing what it needs to do and users not noticing that it's there. It's yesterday we did a cutover of, of one of our big data systems and we flipped it over intraday while people were using it and no one noticed and it's that quiet no one noticed that, that fills you with the most joy that's like, yes, we did this complicated thing and no one cared and, and that's where the joy comes in. I think the, the, the key thing for me is I agree with pretty much everything you said there, Michael, except for the, the guys that are in it for the power trip are the guys you must be scared of the most and um, try and get them wheedled, wheedled out as fast as possible because they are the ones that cause the most pain and suffering for everyone because they enjoy the pain and suffering that others endure due to them. Um, hey, I, I didn't say that uh, there, you know, that everybody in this field is perfect. There's oh, yeah. a lot of different types. Uh, but but like you said, yeah, having having people not notice what you do. So I, I, I tossed in a link that uh, will go in the show notes. This is a group of guys who change a tire on a car while it's up on two wheels, and you know they they change a flat and replace a tire. That's how a lot of like live operations feels like to me. It's Yep. You want to keep that car going, and there is definitely a thrill there of mm. being able to do this live and sometimes, you know, go out, hang out with some friends and be like, hey, guess what we did last week? We yanked out 15 different components, and nobody knew. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's exactly it. See, you guys are talking about it from that end, and, and I'm sorry. I'm going to go back into this cynical thing, but I'm so <laughs> used to getting dumped on, right? I, I would get stuff. Sorry, Trevor. But I would get stuff from really wonky developers who really probably shouldn't have been developing code and would throw it my way and, and I would put it on systems and it was like, wow, what can we write that's going to make this system stay up long enough for them to figure out what the bug is so that they can fix it, but we won't impact production. And, you know, that whole rush of just, can I beat the really bad code I just received or the latest Microsoft patch that's decided to totally screw up IE and have it flood with all kinds of other stuff it was never supposed to send and it's really messing with the code and can I beat those problems back and nobody knows because to me like you guys are saying too you're failing as an ops person if anybody notices is kind of the way I feel like if, if you notice that we had a problem then that's my and I feel responsible for that and that's why I want to try to prevent and it's that rush of trying to beat the system and, and make sure that I can keep it up and come up with a solution that's going to work without putting the company out of business because we're going to spend so much money at the same time not allow people to actually use whatever systems we're talking about. There's more to it than just all the... You guys were being very shiny happy, but there's also some, some okay. negative... Like, when things are going bad, there's also that rush too, and I think as a sysadmin, you can't not enjoy fixing the shit oh, yeah. too. So when, when Mike was talking about nobody says they want to grow up and be a sysadmin. So that was the thing. So in one of my last jobs when I was at apartments.com, I kind of started this intern program in our tech ops. And for the first few that I, I did, it was really, really hard. It was a really hard hire to hire a, a kid that was in school to come do tech ops. And what I'd have is I'd have someone who was like studying to like do application development or project management or they want to be, you know, this was sort of like, okay, Here's a thing I can do where I can go get a little bit of experience. And then this this dude came in and interviewed for one of the one of the slots. And I was like, so what does you want to do when you grow up? And he's like, I want to be a sysadmin. And I was like, bullshit. No, tell me the truth. I'm like, you're just kissing. He goes, no, this is what I want to do. And I was like, I, I hired him. And dude was like the best hire I've ever had. This was a couple of years ago. 
So, I mean, he just finished up school. He is a DevOps engineer now at a gaming company in Chicago and making more money than I made when I was like 38, which was a year ago. <laughs> I just realized. So maybe not 38, but you know. But <laughs> you made that awesome. sound like so long ago. Like, yeah, oh, no, I, was I, 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 I was just sort of saying numbers. I've been up for like 36 hours at this point. Now. Or 38 <laughs> hours. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was just, and it was because, and so what made him an awesome intern was that he would do anything. And it wasn't like just whatever, because it was interesting to him, right? It was like, oh, cool. I get to go do this. And I remember talking about, he'd be like, yeah, and like, he'd be like in a class in school, and they'd be talking about virtualization, and he's like, dude, we just completely migrated our entire virtualization at work, you know, and you guys are just talking about it, and I'm doing it, and and I think, like, that's a rare thing, like, I feel like a lot of us got into this side of the world not necessarily on purpose, so when someone really wants to do it, we kind of, I think at first, I don't know, for me, I, I have that reaction like I had, which was the, for reals, you know, <laughs> Just because I think it doesn't occur to people as a as a choice, maybe more now than than before. I don't know. Part of the the problem that exists in the world is that it isn't a profession that's visible or like shown to younger people as this is an option for you. People hear about you know, oh, I could go be a doctor, I could be an accountant, I could be an architect, I could be a fireman, but nobody really hears about systems administrators. There was a systems administrator in a movie that was played by Jack Black, whose last name was Fiedler. The character's name was Fiedler, that's why I remember it. But he was a systems administrator, enemy of the state. And I was yeah. like, wow, there's a sysadmin in a movie. Like, yeah. that is new to me. And, oh, and yes, his name is Fiedler, yay me. <laughs> but it was uh, it was just exciting that this is an, a niche of the, the technology world, which, if you really think about it, is kind of foundational uh, again, like like somebody mentioned earlier, maybe before we were live, like characters are like, yeah, in, in, in some TV shows are like, yeah, you don't know what we do. We build the internet. We yeah. make all of those fancy things that you love to poke and click and, and point and apps and downloads and likes. We do that. This is what we do. We build that. Maybe not for a service or a company that you're actively using right now, but at some point in kind of our history, we're helping you do what you want to do from, again, behind the scenes. You know, and I, I think Matt's probably, you know, at least in terms of sysadmins that I know well, Matt's probably the closest to a pure sys- sysadmin that I've ever met. Wow, that's scary. Um, every, <laughs> Is you know, that a compliment? Or a... <laughs> no, it's not meant to be detrimental in any way, but to, to kind of highlight this, I'm, I think I'm by far the youngest in the room. Growing up over the past 20 years, as opposed to having worked for the past 20 years, <laughs> everybody I know who maintained systems was also a developer. So every system administrator in the school also taught the programming classes. I know a person who works for a naval shipyard as a systems administrator, but he also runs all the development network at the grade school I used to go to. One of the best programming teachers I had at Columbia is also the system architect. I can't think of anybody, you know, Matt codes for chef. I can't think of anybody who's a pure sysadmin and doesn't do code also. Well, Trevor, I think this is the reason why. I wrote an article a few months back on DevOps Mastery saying basically in five years, if you aren't scripting, then you aren't going to have a job as a sysadmin. And the shot across the bow on that was Microsoft saying, 
okay, that's it. We give up. We're not doing a GUI anymore, and we're going to ship 2012 without a GUI. And if you didn't wake up and realize at that point that you need to learn how to at least program in PowerShell, if not one of the other languages, Ruby, Python, Perl, pick your favorite language. But as a sysadmin, if you're not doing that, you really don't have a choice. Because I have a feeling maybe not the next release of Windows Server, but the one after that, there isn't going to be a GUI option. They're going to expect you to move that over. And a lot of that has, has come from Azure and Microsoft learning that, hey, you know what? It's really hard to do a GUI across the Internet. And being able to run scripts and, sh- and shells is much more efficient and much more consistent. And uh, I think that's why a lot of what you're seeing is, is there. I think it's more that they just don't have a choice. Like, you have to learn how to develop. And I actually pulled a developer into my team at my last, when I was a team lead, I wanted a developer to come to my team because I wanted him to teach my scripters how to be more like a developer and how to, like, use version control. Because, you know, I'm really tired of going into places and everybody's backup scheme is first version of script dot back, second version of script dot back dot date, third version (laughs) dot back dot back dot date. I mean, you know, those aren't version control systems and it's not ways to manage your code and then nobody knows which is the right one. Um, So somehow Nathan Harvey just felt this like, wow, I want to give someone a hug moment right now because that's like when I was, I love his thing. He's like, if you think that version control is dot back, then stop what you're doing and go install Git. I'll wait. <laughs> yeah, I mean, was that because of your? Was he on your last show? But I saw he, some tweets. Well, yeah, he said it on there, and I've seen him do it in talks. It's, it's, but yeah, it's totally true. Nobody wants to use RCS anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was the latest and greatest. No, the latest and greatest is the AS400 file system where it does the version controls for you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. I knew it. Yep. <laughs> I'm going to go run an upgrade. <laughs> so a question from our listeners. So I'm going to butcher this. Matteo Sao Franco says, how many of you were introduced to the notion of an admin or a sysop from the BBS days? So let's let's really blast from the past here. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who wants to explain to Trevor what a BBS was? I know what it is. I didn't even I know what it's it like is. Like I had a history class. How young Trevor is. <laughs> uh, so who wants to fill the BBS? Interesting story with the BBS is is uh, I downloaded my, my first copy of Linux through a BBS. It was in uh, the 93 I downloaded over my 9,600 bits per second modem. Over a week, I could download one floppy every every day, every night, overnight, while it came down. But once I had that, I actually then had the tools to connect directly to the internet because the BBS that I was on had a slip door. So we could uh, go through the slip door, bring up the slip client, and uh, behold, an IP address on the machine, and the world was the most awesome place back in those days. So did you ever run your own BBS? I, I, I did try and run my own BBS for a little while and then I actually went and started doing work for uh, one of the local BBSs down the road who became one of the big ISPs around and when they built their new offices they had their modem banks in a glass room uh, right by reception so you could walk in you could see all the lights uh, it was fantastic oh, Those were the days yeah, I, I ran a BBS back probably in 92, 93, uh, and I could only run it at night because we only had one phone line, and uh, so it would be live from, I think, about 10 p.m. till 6 a.m., uh, otherwise my mother would be upset that I was running up a phone bill. 
But this was before uh, Linux. This was uh, I was running it under a uh, an MS DOS system with uh, a QEMM to split memory management, yep. so that way I was able to run uh, this BBS process in the background and still do other stuff in the foreground. Like I remember, kind of being amazed at our uh, our golden mail kind of network route where it took three days for somebody to get a response uh, to get your email and it was so exciting when they did because yeah. you know that was faster than snail mail now if it doesn't happen in 10 seconds or less oh my god <laughs> yeah 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 i had a five well, don't address but uh, the joy was the same <laughs> Oh yeah, we had like yeah, my college like we didn't have a direct internet connection, so it was like UUCP, right? It would like dial up and do UUCP to like pull yeah. mail down from somewhere else, like several times a day or whatever, and you just the deluge of email all at once. Mm-hmm. Did you guys have Bitnet and JNet too, which were like other university-only inter-mainframe connections? Because that's yeah. what Kent and I think CMU had. Bitnet addresses and some other schools in Ohio had had those addresses too. Didn't take quite that long, but yeah, for me, I was a user and abuser of, of BBSs. I didn't really ever try to admin one, and I got lucky because in Ohio, Case Western Reserve set up one of the first free nets, which was supposed to be a whole community thing around <laughs> that, and it was all text based. But it came out kind of too late. The internet started to take off right about the time it came out, so it kind of got crushed by the internet. So, I, Brian, I'm I'm curious. You said that you were a user and abuser of BBSs. Sure. Did you ever get caught by an admin? Did you ever have your account locked out or, or get a nasty uh, message? I became friends with a lot of admins because of that, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, they would, you know, just, hey, look, you know, you're only supposed to be on for so long, and you figured out how to get around it. And I'm like, well, you know, and then we would go out and hang out, and everything would be cool. But I would be locked out for some point in time. A couple of them just didn't like me, so yeah, they they kicked me in. There were so many at one point that it didn't really matter. (laughs) (laughs) Just bob to the next. Yeah. We one of the questions we got. So Alex Howells or at Nick's Geek, uh, his question to the panel was, uh, "How often do you think? Fuck it all. I'm going to be a plumber or an electrician." That's a good question. So I I I probably started out uh, with a little bit of electronics and uh, and and stuff before I got into like more computing just because that was available. Uh, Like I always had a computer at home. My dad worked as a software engineer, so I was I was lucky in that respect. But uh, the the schoolwork and courses did not have any computing where I was, so uh, it was more about electronics. There's something very satisfying in working on something with your hands, seeing the physical manifestation of something work. And in this day and age of cloud computing, who knows if you're ever going to touch hardware again, if that's what your company uses. So there's something very uh, cool about that. But I don't come across the desire to change professions because I think that overall I'm pretty lucky where I am in this field. I get to play with some of the underlying technologies of everything, and an electrician or a plumber feels so constrained compared to what what I get to play with on a daily basis. Yeah, I, I enjoy the electronic side of things, and uh, thankfully, at least I still look after a lot of metal, and so I get to uh, I get involved with um, with a lot of the electrical stuff. It was actually about three months ago, um, our data center guys came to us and said. Uh, yeah, we just realized on one of the PDUs on your cabs that you're running at about 115% of the rating on on that thing. So uh, 
there was three phase coming into the cab and so we had to add an extra phase and rebalance our systems on the fly and so it's you know I, I still still enjoy this there's definitely that that physical manifestation whenever i've at least when i was younger when i had a full-time dev job that's what i missed the most i missed going into the the server room and actually you know having a look at sorting out the cables or figuring out where we can add capacity or or what was going on just just seeing the the blinky lights uh makes me happy it's it's funny like to watch like the the hip chat conversations and stuff when like someone goes to a data center for some random reason and then just starts like oh my god it was so awesome to see racks again you know (laughs) because you're like so and like i did this we had a when i was at 10m like just as a gag, like, because they're a cloud company, right? So it was like they were doing some giveaway thing at some career fair. And, you know, we're like, we're like do we have a... And I, I had, like, an old server. And I was like, here, you can have it and see if people can guess how much it weighs. And if they are, they win a thing. And so I brought it in. It was, like, this G5 DL380, I think, or something like that. And I swear to God, it was, like, freaking drooling. Because I'm sitting there going, oh, they're so pretty inside. Because, I mean, I still <laughs> love the way Polyance are designed, you know? And it was... And I swear everybody else was like, seriously? I'm like, yes. I don't understand. You're developers. <laughs> <laughs> it's only a matter of time, you know. I think Chris was saying earlier the company had the uh, the servers out behind the glass so that you, everybody could see them blinking. Yep. It's only a matter of time before there's just, you know, an art installation that is, you know, a replication of what servers once looked like blinking in an office lobby. You know, it's just, you know, a half-inch facade of what once was. <laughs> well, I mean, not for nothing. Uh, a few years back, I was in London, and I dropped by the Museum of Science in London, and they had a whole setup of, uh, what was it, home computers. And my first computer, the TI Texas Instruments 994A, was powered up behind okay. that glass. And I was like, I, okay, now I'm a dinosaur. Because I'm in a museum with everybody else. Oh, no. But considering that in the device that you have in your pocket, the iPad, the computer that you have today, is so overloaded with... with, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, okay. uh, It's not an iPad, per se. (laughs) Uh, but, But these have so much technology in them. Your television has more technology than the space shuttle had, right? So, you know, microcomputing and uh, cloud computing and, and all the, of the services that you're used to kind of touching and feeling are, are kind of going away in favor of something else. So, you know, at some point, what was it? Mitchell Hashimoto, the creator of uh, HashiCorp and Vagrant and a bunch of other cool tools that are really important to uh, modern-day uh, development and stuff like that, he had uh, at one point said, here I am having done all of this and I've never seen the inside of a data center. And to me, that was like mind-boggling. Like, oh, wow, you can't even conceive of what the rest of us have been, you know, like working in and, and doing. Which you, so what you are hoping save us from. <laughs> exactly. Like, you don't, you, oh, you don't know. Like, <laughs> and eventually I think he did get around to, uh, to seeing the internals to see how it actually works. But it was just like mind-boggling that in five to ten years, you may have the kind of specialization in uh, the field of, of technology where the only people who see inside of data centers are people who solely work in data centers, kind of like the only people who see the inside of the sewers are the people who work in the sewers. 
Like it, it's turning into that specialization field over time where Matt's desire to kind of like sit there and drool over a ProLiant server is going to be foreign to more and more people. I have a really interesting thing. So, uh, so what you guys think about this? So when when our, my tech screen for sysadmins, um, when I was in apartments, like my softball question was like, describe raid levels to me, right? Tell me about the different raid levels because I I figured I wanted to start with something easy and blah blah. blah. And I get so many people that couldn't do it. And at first I was like, oh my god, who are these people that think they can come do this? And I was like, you know what? There are people that are really good sysadmins who live in a virtualization world, and they don't touch hardware, but they're good at managing system. You know, it's like, to me, I was just like, oh, my God, how can you possibly, you know, not know that? And it's like, you actually could be really good at what you do. You know, you could be a really good admin and not know that kind of hardware. And then this was like a huge conversation. I feel like, Trevor, I feel like we've talked about this on the show, too. Have we? I think uh, on some I talk about it a lot. I think, oh, we, talk, we talked about it on the dev show. <laughs> <laughs> Full circle. You planned that right? one. Yes, it's like I did it on purpose. Yeah. So before we move into our checkouts, I want to go around and your best scary war story. What was your best story of when you absolutely crapped your pants as an admin? So, <laughs> my team. <laughs> Oh, me first? Oh, I gotta come up with one of the worst. <laughs> so this eh, it's not the worst, but um it was pretty it was pretty weird. Where we've got everything running in a in a data center that's all, you know, managed and cooled and everything like that. And uh one one of our core mail servers just bombs out. It's gone. You know, can't go, can't hit it. We obviously did not have a failover email server at that time just because we were transitioning. And it'll always be transitioning. That way you can write it off as that's why we weren't planned. And uh, so we, we hop in, go over to the data center, and uh, pull, you know, look at it. It's just dark. It's, it's all... It's, not, it, it's one of the ones that's at the bottom of the rack. Um, you know, it's a 2U, uh, I don't know, what is that, 5 inches now, size uh, server. Pull it out and pop it open, and there's a, uh, a a dead mouse inside there that had apparently urinated on the motherboard and shorted it all out, and that's why we lost it. And it was like, oh, well, not a quick fix here. Got to order a new uh, motherboard and power supply and get all that replaced. Ugh. Not, nice. not, not a fun thing to find. Chris Treat. Yeah, my one's actually also email related. I think it was <laughs> it, it, it was about ninety seven. I was an email administrator for a big multinational based in Johannesburg. I looked after a, a, an MS Mail three point five system running on NT three five one, and had a couple hundred. Well, actually, we had about maybe I think it was about twenty mail servers spread. You know, one was as far away as in Hong Kong on the the back of an analog leased line, and all the email, internet email, came through uh, a little Spark Station Classic that we had uh, sitting on the back of our sixty four k line that everyone used for the internet, and that was down, and so internet email wasn't working, and. I was working in the head office and a whole lot of people had been bugging me for when's the email coming back? When's the email coming back? And it's like, we're waiting for the telco to come and bring the line back up. And so eventually I'd gotten fed up with people coming to ask me. So I decided to send an email to everyone saying, listen, there's a problem with internet email right now. We're waiting for the carrier to come and fix the line. It'll be back. Now we had about six and a half thousand mailboxes in the system. So I just went MS mail, 
and just I kind of the very first I think it was probably one of the precursors to Outlook. It wasn't the the full blown MS Mail client. It was one of the newer ones. And I just said, right, everyone in the address book to address, click send, go. And then maybe about half an hour later, the uh, IT director comes screaming in uh, to the room saying, who let this fucking cowboy loose on my network, screaming and shouting, because what had actually happened was that there was a bug in the older MS Mail mail clients where if the two header was bigger than 64K, the mail client would just segfault. And so what had happened now is this email was now in everyone's mailboxes and pretty much everyone throughout the company's mail clients started to segfault and crash on them. So they had no email at all. And so it was uh, basically... Me and uh, one of the guys on my team basically had a, a 36-hour day um, basically putting together a batch script to go through each and every mailbox, uh, find this message ID, and delete it from the mailbox so that everyone could get hold of their emails again. That was uh, a very educational moment in bad software and sysadmin. All right, and Brian? I'm going to continue the trend. I don't know why. It seems like we all started doing email stuff, but my first official job as an email admin I got pulled over from the help desk because I actually knew knew Unix and understood Solaris and could do all that stuff. Um, the company that I worked for had just been purchased by FedEx. The two email admins who convinced me that, hey, come over, we're going to teach you Lotus Notes and we'll teach you how to do all the sysadmin stuff and it'll be great. Both of them just do this real big sales pitch on me. I go, okay, cool, let's go. The day I start, they both put in their two weeks notice. Oh. The worst part about that was, Oh, yeah, by the way, we've already prepped you for the first upgrade that you're going to have to do. You kind of need to do it soon because there's some issues with the version of notes we're on. You need to do this upgrade as soon as possible. Uh, okay. And you're sure it's going to work? Yeah, yeah. It's been in dev for, for months now. It'll be fine. It'll be totally fine. Okay. So I do the release. Fine. Saturday night, Sunday, no problems. Monday morning, about the 101st person connecting to email would crash the server. So the server would recover, come back up, hit 100 people, crash. Recover, come back up, 100 people, crash. I was on the phone for three days with IBM trying to get this to work correctly and eventually just had to back it out. But three days of talking to, like, here I am, what was I, like 21, having to explain to the president of three different divisions who have no idea how the Internet or email works why they can't get to their email and why they can't connect to it. And, you know, various yelling and screaming at me, to which I looked at him and went, you can yell all you want. Not going to get it fixed any faster. <laughs> There's nothing I can do. So, uh, yeah, that was my worst. It taught me to test the stuff myself, let's put it that way, and do load tests. Matt, what about you? Okay, so I think I'm going to do this kind of quick. This is a you know, kind of crap your pants because of my own fault thing. So when I was really just early starting out, so I was working for this company, this uh, mail-order computer retailer that at the time was a competitor to CDW because, believe it or not, there was a time when there were competitors to CDW. And so our main, like, kind of financial order system was this little, you know, System 5 box and running some ridiculous custom software that had been built for us and blah, 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 that I didn't really understand how it worked. And I was also like all of probably, yeah, I don't know, very green in my career. And my reach was definitely exceeding my grasp as when it came to my knowledge. And so we had this issue where it was at the end of the day and um, some files had appeared to have gotten corrupted. 
And so I was like, well, I had my backup from last time. Like, let me, I want to see if those backups are there. And so I tried to run, you know, whatever the system five command was to basically index the tape. But then it appeared that it was starting to restore. Like, and so what, so I sat there thinking that I had basically blown away, but of course it was taking hours to do. This is like after hours, so now it's just me and the owner of the company. And I'm sitting there going, thinking that it's this countdown of that's going to result in basically like, Hey, we lost. $50,000 of orders are totally gone. And it basically took like hours and hours and hours to then tell me you couldn't read the tape. <laughs> <laughs> but I was sweating like a crazy person during that time. So that was one of the scarier ones. Then there's, of course, I think we've probably all done the power off the wrong box. Like I was at an insurance company here in the, well, not here, I'm not in Chicago, I'm in the Chicago area that rhymes with mall fate. And... <laughs> One of my jobs was just rebuilding boxes in this data center and you kind of would go there and since you were building it from scratch, you'd just be like, boom, shut it down. So I went in, kind of boom, shut it down. Then I go on to KVM and I'm like, wait a minute, wrong box. Don't know what this thing does. I'm just going to leave the data center and kind of watch from the outside and see if anybody comes and freaks out. And nobody did. <laughs> so, yes, you all should trust me with your systems. <laughs> so that said... Let's uh, move into our checkouts. So, Mike, what do you got for us? The first thing that I think everybody should check out uh, is very uh, relevant to today's show. It's opschool.org. Opschool is an open source curriculum for anybody who wants to learn anything about the practices of uh, systems administration and operations in general. I'm currently the chief editor because nobody else wants to do it. And it's open source, it's on GitHub, we have a bunch of people who contribute when they can, contribute as you can, read it, fix your, fix my typos, and, and help us all out. The second one is codeschool.com. They're not anybody I, I know personally, but I've, I've checked out their site, I've used it before, they've got a few uh, decent courses on just introductory to development and some other kind of fields. They're very uh, fun and helpful to kind of get your feet wet if you want to try a new language or a new uh, framework. They're pretty uh, pretty useful. They have some paid courses as well that I haven't tried yet, but I'm pretty sure are better than the free stuff. And the final is everybody's always talking about beer. I don't. I uh, I drink uh, wine. So uh, check out the Benziger uh, Family Winery. They're from Sonoma, California. Uh, they're really good. They're at Benziger.com. I'm a customer. I love it. Chris? Yeah, I got something old, something new, um, something old to look at, which uh, I've recently been getting a lot of mileage out of is the uh, IM file plugin uh, module for Arsyslog. Basically allows, uh, gets Arsyslog to tail a file for you and spit it out to remote Syslog server. So uh, I'm getting a lot of mileage out of that, uh, just tailing log files and spitting that into Logstash for me. And something new is uh, IO Snoop for Linux. If you've ever been sitting on a Linux box with a fairly new kernel and wonder you know, what processes are, are are writing what to which file systems, which block devices, uh, IO Snoop is a, a piece of beautiful bash and orc which uh, trolls the uh, perf events and the debug file system on Linux kernel, which uh, gives you all those answers as well as service times for each IO operation. Um, they are very, very good. Don't confuse it with, uh, originally, uh, Brendan Gregg wrote it for Solaris uh, using D-Trace, but he did a port of it to Linux recently, which is fantastic. Awesome. Brian? All right, I got um, I have three of them. A site that I thought of while Mike was talking was uh, TrueAbility. It's a cool little site 
that uh, they run little contests. You can go out and test your Linux skills and see if you can can beat other people playing it. They usually have some sort of giveaway with it. My second item is I love the Pogo Plug. This is probably one of the most hackable and definitely one of the cheapest Linux boxes you can get your hands on. It's not very powerful. It's only got 128 megs of RAM and an ARM chip. But they're like 10 bucks. I put a link in the show notes. It takes about 20 minutes to hack it, and then you've got actually a cool little Linux box that you can play with. Um, it's got USB and uh, an SD card slot, so you can put some extra storage in there, or you can do whatever you want with it. Um, I've been playing with those. Those have been a lot of fun. And then my last one is um, Ohio Linux Fest is coming up in October, and I will be speaking at Ohio Linux Fest. So I wanted to give it a little plug and say that uh, registration for Ohio Linux Fest is open now. So you can go out and uh, we had a little talk about this on the Linux installed.net podcast last night. The registration process is a little wonky, so uh, bear with them. It's all a volunteer organization, but uh, if you can figure out how to do it, even if you can't, just show up on the day of the thing. It's only $5 to get in if you don't pre-register. So awesome. that's cool. Trevor. Well, I only got one tech-related thing because I've been on vacation, um, but there's this app for iPhone, which so because it's for iPhone, I will probably never use it, but it sounds cool. Uh, it's called Human. And uh, it's oh yes, to, it's uh, awesome. Oh, you're using it? Yes. Apparently, it lets you kind of do semantic looks-ups of your contacts, so you can kind of associate like locations or nicknames and that kind of stuff. If I understand it correctly. Yeah, it's it's like a replacement for your phone app, so to speak. I mean, it dials through the phone app, but like right, cause... you use that instead <laughs> for like direct calling. It's it's pretty cool. Um, I'm getting used to it. But. Other than that, I, I kind of spent the past week and a half going through historic New England, going through Salem, um, Mystic Seaport, the Gilbert Sullivan House. Or not Gilbert Sullivan. I, I keep saying Gilbert Sullivan. Gilbert Stewart. Uh, he's the gentleman who painted uh, George Washington that's on the $1 bill. Probably the coolest thing was technology-related was I went to the USS Nautilus, which was our first American nuclear sub. It's sitting in the, the harbor in Groton, Connecticut, and you can tour the ship. It's really neat. Lots of old equipment on there. That's that's pretty much it for me. Matt? Yes. Okay, so I have a couple um, real quick. One is uh, it's called LalRoot. Uh, so if you go to lalroot.ca, it is a certificate authority for self-signed certs. So it's totally a groaner joke thing that's completely ridiculous and made me laugh a lot. So go check it out. Also, in honor of the show, this is an old school thing, but I bet there's a lot of people who listen who have never seen this before. And those of you who have, it's always, you know, a good for a laugh. And that is the bastard operator from hell. So I'll put a link in the show notes, but if you can't wait, it's bofh.ntk.net slash bofh. And it's was uh, out on, uh, just, uh, back on Alyssa back in the day. And it's the story of Simon, the bastard computer operator from hell and how he tortures his users. And to this day, I read it and it literally, I mean, I don't laugh out loud at things by myself usually and I laugh like crazy, which might be a reflection on me as a human being. Also, as a checkout is that registration is open for the Chef Community Summit, which is in October 2nd and 3rd, I think. But if you want to know for sure, go to arresteddevops.com slash chef community and I have a discount code, I think, which I'll remember in a minute. But in the meantime, while I'm looking um. for it, as the uh, the the opposite of what Matt's saying, there's there's also a subreddit Tales from Tech Support, which tells the horror stories from our side of the thing of the game. 
Oh, actually, well, you know, one other one just along those lines. That if we're just doing this, I should also is um, Chronicles of George. I will post a link to that. You guys should all read Chronicles of George. But while I'm looking for this, Chris, you said you had another checkout, another thing. Yeah. Um, well done on the the BOFH thing. I I, I still <laughs> refer to uh, guys that I'm training uh, as as my PFYs, my pimply faced youths yes. <laughs> who I am leading astray. Yeah. If there's any uh, developers out there in the Chicago land area who uh, want to learn more about the upside of things. Uh, one of our internal teams here at BRW who's uh, looking for a developer to uh, help some of our sysadmin folks with uh, improving our monitoring and systems like that. Uh, we're looking for someone good, so uh, we'll have a link to the job ad in the uh, in the show notes. Cool. And I don't know if Matt found... I, I didn't. I'm this. I, oh, my God, I'm so bad about this. So I will tweet it. So if you so make sure you watch if our you can Twitter. find it among Matt's many tweets. No, no, Arrested DevOps will tweet it, not me. <laughs> so follow at Arrested you, DevOps. Not we. Whatever. Anyway, so let's wrap it up. Reminder: We have a newsletter. That's also a reminder for me that we have a newsletter. You can subscribe by going to ArrestedDevOps.com/slash/BananaStand. It is the best way to know about upcoming podcast episodes and occasionally cool news with DevOps when I remember to send them. But I definitely will be making a point to send more updates, not like a ton that will spam you. So go sign up for our thing. Also, don't forget, it's conference season. Uh, we'd like to remind you about FlowCon. FlowCon brings together technologists and industry leaders passionate about innovation through lean product development, continuous delivery, lean UX, and DevOps. They'll be exploring the role of culture, technology, and design in growing organizations that thrive in an environment of continual change. They'll provide inspiring and actionable information for key decision makers responsible for products and services that depend on software. The full program includes speakers from Google, Netflix, Heroku, Nordstrom, SoundCloud, Macy's, HP, Joyent, ThoughtWorks, and IBM. The second day features an open space unconference and workshops from Don Reinerstun, Mary and Tom Poppendick, Whitney Johnson, and Sarah B. Nelson. Use the special promo code ArrestedDevOps50 for $50 off at ArrestedDevOps.com slash FlowCon. That code was ArrestedDevOps50, and the website was ArrestedDevOps.com slash FlowCon. Also, the O'Reilly Velocity Conference is happening September 15th through 17th in New York City, and it's the place where DevOps, WebOps, and performance professionals from Fortune 500 to exciting startups, gather for a legendary learning and networking experience that explores why a faster, stronger web is no longer an option but a necessity. Hear from the best speakers in the industry who will delve into topics ranging from hardcore math and stats to monitoring, clustering, analytics, and organizational culture. Attend Velocity and you'll view your work, the technologies you use, and your organization in completely new ways. Use code ARDEV20 to save 20% at ArrestedDevOps.com slash VelocityNYC. And as Matt and I are both forgetful, uh, I should also mention that FlowCon is September 3rd and 4th. So it's coming up pretty quick. So oh my god, do we not have to say when it is in my spiel? <laughs> nope. <laughs> well, now you know. Yes. And so thanks again to our sponsors, PagerDuty and Datadog, and to our loyal listeners. If you enjoy Arrested DevOps, we'd appreciate it if you go to arresteddevops.com slash iTunes and we listen to you in the iTunes store. Uh, we've, we've, not, we've only had a couple, I think. Matt, have we had recent reviews? You're on iTunes. We haven't had anything recently. 
so we could use some more. If you if you write a good one, we'll we'll read our favorite ones on episodes or hell any of them at this point. <laughs> we just we want some love, guys. Come on. <laughs> Thanks to Mike, Chris, and Brian for joining us. Thanks, guys. It was great having you on the show. Thank oh. you, guys. Thanks and for having me. Absolutely. Be sure to check us out at ArrestedDevOps.com or at ArrestedDevOps on Twitter. We are always happy to get your input, ideas, or feedback at shows at ArrestedDevOps.com. So if you have ideas for upcoming shows, let us know, or just thoughts, two cents. And this is your lucky week, because lucky or lucky week, I don't know, but we're going to have a whole other episode next week because calendars are hard. So join us next <laughs> week at 17 Central on Thursday, August 28th for Dev to Ops. So we're going to be talking about people who made the transition in their career from being a developer to moving into more of an operations role. The URL for the show is ArrestedDevOps.com slash 19. So as always, I am Matt at Matt Stratton. And I'm Trevor at Trevor G. Hess. We are Arrested DevOps. And remember, there's always DevOps in the banana stand. And Matt's going to burn down the banana stand while well, he's out in, uh, in the OC. Yeah. <laughs>